Miss Wolf, we're so pleased that you could come here and tour our beautifully restored old movie palace. It's really magnificent. It's, it's like an opera house. People from my generation have never seen a movie in a place that didn't have at least nine other screens and, you know, popcorn sprayed with flame retardant. I know, right? Seeing a movie 80 years ago was an aesthetic thrill from beginning to end. Feast your eyes on the Moroccan detail of Excuse this. Excuse me, Mr. Grillo, but is that a ghost? No, I will not make out with you. <laughs> Did you hear that? This girl wants to make out with me in the middle of class? You got chlorophyll man up there talking about God knows what. All she's talking about is making out with me. I'm here to learn, everybody, not to make out with you. Go on with the chlorophyll. Oh, my God. That is terrifying. Yeah, all these old movie palaces are haunted. But that's Adam Sandler. Yes. By the time we finished our renovation, Tyrone Power was already taken. Go away, Adam. You're not funny. We're not going to laugh. I brought my own laugh track, and uh, let's test it out. <laughs> oh, Adam, that's a good one! You know, I, I hate to say it, but this is wrecking the whole experience. And how can he be a ghost? He's not dead. He should be. Apparently he signed up for some kind of priority status, like those things that let you get on the airplane before anyone else. He's like a Ruby-class Afterlife Advantage customer or something. Oh, no. Mr. Grillo, it looks like the ghost is going to sing. Please don't let him sing. Adam, what did we say about your singing? No singing. Bad ghost. I wonder when Elliot said goodbye to E.T. Oh, God. Did you break down and cry? Oh, God. Oh. I wonder if I gave you pudding, eggs, and flour. Oh. Could you make uh. a Boston cream pie? Oh, really? I uh, uh. if your eyes close when you come in for a kiss. No. Uh. I wonder if we had a baby. Would you object to having a breast? Oh, no. Oh, come on. Uh, Holy crap, that was terrifying. I suppose that when you see him every day, you get used to how upsetting he is. No, you don't. Okay, it's been a great tour, but I just realized that I have to judge a gerbil show. Anyway, I can't stay for the rest of it. That's what everybody says. But let's hear about a much more satisfying haunted movie, Palace Experience, featuring Wally Lamb. And now he can't understand why the Nicholas Sparks novels aren't in the horror section. Colin McEnroe. Could be just me. I think kissing in the rain is very scary. You could get sick. Uh, all right. So, yes, if you're going to have a haunted movie palace, you want to be to have it be haunted with somebody estimable, somebody that you respect and look, look up to, or maybe somebody that you never heard of, but it turns out to be a very impressive person, as is the case with Wally Lamb's new novel, I'll Take You There. I should say, and I'm going to set this up as a Twitter thing, too, that Wally Lamb, over the course of his career, if you're a Wally Lamb fan, which I am, you know that Wally's um, novels and, and other books, are they tend to have titles that are song titles, and they're usually uh, complete sentences or independent clauses. Hence, I'll take you there. So I made a list of uh, things that could be Wally Lamb uh, titles in the future. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? Dance Me to the End of Love, the Leonard Cohen song. song. You Shook Me All Night Long, uh, and I Am Trying to Break Your Heart. If you have another potential Wally Lamb title, you may be doing him a huge service, too. Uh, you can tweet it at WNPR Colin. Tweet it right out. It's going to be a song title and an independent clause. Uh, Wally, will that be helpful, or, or do, you, do you just need to really kind of stumble on these things on your own? 
You know, I've already written the first sentence to I can shake you all over. I'm uh, I'm good to go. <laughs> you shook me all night long. You have to get oh, it's the yeah, ACDC yeah, yeah. song. You don't want to, okay. you know, you tend to do spirituals and stuff. You're not going to do a, an ACDC <laughs> song as a title. No, probably not. <laughs> so let's let's talk about Ghost. This is a, a novel set um, uh, atmospherically in the actual, real, beautiful, restored guard theater in New London, uh, where your protagonist, uh, whose name is Felix Funicello, he is a uh, professor who teaches uh, film studies, he loves old movies, loves old things, uh, in a very uneasy relationship mo- with modernity, although he has kind of a hyper-modern uh, young adult daughter who is constantly throwing modernity at him. Uh, uh, but what he really loves is the past. He loves old movies, he loves old things, and he's in this old movie theater, and he encounters ghosts. And so, first of all, Wally, tell, tell me what ghosts are to you. I mean, in terms of incorporating them into this narrative, are, are ghosts real ghosts, or are they simply an embodiment that takes us into the past? I think it could be both. Uh, you know, I, I made them real ghosts in this, uh, in this particular novel, but I think, in a way, uh, our DNA sort of carries the ghosts of our past. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I sort of reserve uh, any kind of judgment about the reality or unreality of ghosts. I'm, I just uh, sort of think maybe it's possible. Uh, and this is uh, this book is kind of uh, it combines elements of uh, a Christmas Carol and uh, maybe a little bit of Proust and and but it's a very original way of and maybe a couple of Woody Allen movies that I've seen too. Woody Allen is often playing with that notion of sort of coming down off the screen or going up into the screen, which is one of the things that happens in this movie. But for you, for this, uh, for the narrative here, it's it's a way for this man, this. Guy Phoenix Funicello, who's a perfectly nice guy and doesn't, I don't think, have a, a bigger collection of demons or unresolved questions than any of the rest of us. Which is to say, he has plenty of them, but you know, most of us do. <laughs> um, you know, it's a way for what for him to relive certain episodes of his past that he doesn't really have a. It, it's it's psychotherapy in a way. He he's going to relive his past. In, in, in a way that gives him some broadened and deepened perspective that's also leavened with new information. Right. And uh, and his mentor, uh, his, uh, his therapist, if you will, is the ghost of uh, a former movie producer from the, uh, from the 1920s in the silent film era, a woman named Lois Weber, who haunts the, uh, the theater. Right. And this is a real person. I mean, we are introduced right away to the, to Lois Weber and to Billy Dove, uh, a silent film star. Um, and I, 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 I'm either typically ignorant or more profoundly ignorant. I never heard of Lois Weber. <laughs> it, it took me a moment or two and maybe a Google search to realize that you weren't making this person up. Yeah, me too. You know, I had no idea when I started this uh, this book that uh, she existed. But, uh, you know, I was down at the Guard Theater for the premiere of the movie version of one of my earlier novels, also starring uh, Felix Funicello, a little little uh, book called Wishing and Hoping. And while I was there, um, they just happened to mention, I'm talking about the uh, the managers of the theater, uh, Gene and Steve Sigal, um, they mentioned that there had been ghost sightings at this theater. And, you know, there is a tradition of, uh, of theatrical ghosts in old movie houses. So um, I sort of got interested in the history of the guard. And, uh, and I found out 
that uh, it was it started out as a vaudeville house and it showed what were then called picture plays, in other words, uh, silent films. And that the very first uh, film that they showed there was a film by the producer Lois Weber. So I'm thinking to myself, really, a woman who was a, a mover and shaker in early Hollywood? You know, they're they're few and far between in today's Hollywood. So uh, so I started doing research on her. And uh, and she really she kind of took over the novel in some ways. I uh, uh, I began to feel um, sort of angry that uh, people like D. W. Griffith are lionized as you know uh, early you know the early movers and shakers, and that uh, Lois has kind of you know faded into the woodwork. So I decided to uh, reoxygenate her via the ghost uh, form and uh, and bring her back to life. And, and as I think you mentioned, maybe at the end or in the acknowledgments or something, she's kind of a placeholder for there are there are a bunch of other names that I frankly did not recognize uh, of women who were directors, who were creators in the early film industry, whose names just don't survive. Right. And they were, um, you know, they were there were a lot of screenwriters and uh, they uh, they tended to gravitate toward uh, subject matter of um, of social uplift, they called it. Um, so Lois Weber did films on, uh, you know, reproductive rights and, uh, you know, equal pay for women and, and that kind of thing. I mean, she was way ahead of her time. Um, but, uh, you know, she was sort of tamped down by, uh, you know, by the Hollywood culture. One reason I asked you the original question, uh, you are, uh, I think, one of eight people who read uh, a serialized novel that I wrote that had ghosts in it. Uh, and at one point I was explaining the plot of this uh, to a friend of mine. And I mentioned that the woman who's the protagonist has uh, sex with a ghost. And he said, well, we all make love to the past, which I immediately stole and incorporated <laughs> into the book. But, I mean, I, I, also, I kept having to say, no, no, you don't understand. This isn't the past. It's a ghost. Uh, <laughs> because I think, I think you know, there, it's weird the way that those things have become interchangeable. Ghost has become such a metaphor for the past that you occasionally have to remind people if it's a real ghost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I uh, at one point, Felix in this novel uh, asks. He's sort of curious, uh, and so he asks Lois. I mean, do you know do, do ghosts? You know, can you have sex with other ghosts? And she, she changes the the subject immediately because you know she's quite of the genteel era. <laughs> right. Well, in a way, because Felix himself is uncomfortable with modernity, circa twenty fifteen. Um, her discomfort with his version of maternity, which is rooted nostalgically in the nostalgically in the fifties and sixties, it really there, there's a little statement being made there too, right? Where each one of us has to adjust to the next person's version of modern life. Sure, growing pains. Yeah, it happens to the best of us. So the you know, the this being. Uh, a Funicello novel, and I, maybe there will be like this whole subgenre of Wally Lamb novels known as Funicello novels, wishing and hoping, uh, kind of started it. And I sort of wondered about this, too, because um, I wondered whether this was in some ways. So uh, in bet- sandwiched in between these is um, We Are Water, which I thought was the Wally. There's, you know, an old saying about how do you write a 19th century novel? You make up some agreeable pe- people and torture them for 500 pages. Um <laughs> And um, I thought that was the this is the was the most nineteenth century of all Wally Lamb novels. I mean, the ah, the people the people who in that novel, they really got it had it pretty tough. <laughs> you were you know there was just a lot of dark places that you went. Are, are the Funicello novels not that this one is relentlessly sunny, 
because we've got anorexia, we've got uh, a very complicated pregnancy s- uh, story being told. I mean, there there are dark places that this one goes. But there, on the other hand, you sort of feel like, as a reader with the Funicello novels, I feel like there's some kind of safety net. I'm probably not going to, you know... Uh, I'm, I'm not going to drop, get dropped into a real deep, dark abyss. I mean, do you feel that way as a writer, too, that these these books, you know, assuming you continue to write them, maybe are uh, a place to go where things can't go quite so drastically wrong? Yeah. Uh, Wishing and Hoping was written sort of in response to a long, very tough nine-year period where I was writing uh, the novel The Hour I First Believed, which mm-hmm. starts out with the Columbine yeah. uh, tragedy. And uh, so I, uh, you know, I, I was really in kind of bad shape when I uh, when I finished that novel. Uh, I had developed something which was diagnosed as um, vicarious traumatization. I had gone so deeply into the research. And so um, I kind of wanted to walk on the sunny side of the street for a while. And that's how Wishing and Hoping came, uh, came into existence. Now, um, probably of all my characters, I don't I don't necessarily write about things that I know. Uh, but the closest uh, character who is um, similar to me uh, would be Felix Funicello. You know, mm-hmm. he didn't have a traumatic childhood and so forth. So um, when I wanted to reinvestigate Felix uh, and his family, I thought, okay, uh, it's going to be another lighthearted romp. But then, um, you know, the uh, the tone is a little different than Wishing and Hope, and it does get a little edgier, a little darker uh, as the story goes on. And I think probably that comes from my fascination with um, uh, the subject of mental illness, which, of course, is based on my having grown up in Norwich, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say I totally got vicarious traumatization. And I, I, you know, having covered 9-11 pretty uh, pretty close and pretty consistently and then having covered uh, Sandy Hook, uh, I do remember very vividly uh, the day of the Boston Marathon bombing. And I mean, I wasn't there or anything like that. But one of the things we very quickly did that day was begin scrolling through Twitter because there were people just pushing photographs of people who were there who were taking pictures. And just we were just trying to get uh, a real time understanding of what had happened. We really didn't know. And I saw some images that I wasn't really prepared to see. And um, I just, I stepped out in the hallway. I had to come into this studio and John Dankowski and I were about to break in and go live. And I actually froze. I froze out in the hallway. And I just thought, I don't know if I can do this one. And I had a very distinct memory of what 9-11 had been like, what Sandy Hook had been like. And I just, I got kind of dizzy and I thought, I just, I don't know if I can go in there and be a journalist about this. This is just so hard. And so these are things, you know, like you. I didn't physically live through any of those things, but there is some way in which they rub off on us. Well, you know, uh, you just reminded me of something that happened uh, on the day of 9-11 that morning. Uh, I had, uh, of course, uh, Columbine, um, you know, came before 9-11. Uh, back in 1999, and um, and when uh, when I saw those planes hit that morning, the first thing that I thought to do was drive to my kids' schools and pick them up so that they would be safe. And I was, um, you know, my I was confused um, in in my fear and uh, and that trauma that sort of came back at me. And uh, and I was going to save them from this horrible thing that was happening at school. But, of course, it wasn't. It was happening not in a Connecticut mm-hmm. uh, elementary school or, or middle school, but it was happening in New York City. 
Yeah. Uh, I was just at a conference uh, in Palm Springs last weekend where I kept running into Dylan Klebold's mother. She's uh, out there. Mm-hmm. She's written a book about uh, yes. how the whole thing sort of passed before her and what she thinks can be learned about it. Well, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to sort of segue into a conversation about nostalgia. One of the things Wally Lamb does very well uh, in these Funicello books is evoke the past, evoke all, all the details. So we'll go out of this segment uh, with one of the songs that he mentions in the book. Uh, this is the great Bobby Darren. Long about a Saturday night yeah. A rub-a-dub Just relaxing in the tub Thinking everything was alright Well, I stepped out the tub Put my feet on the floor I wrapped the towel around me And I opened the door And in a splish-splash I jumped back in the bath We're talking to Wally Lamb. Uh, his books, of course, have included She's Come Undone, I Know This Much Is True. Right now we're talking about the new one, I'll Take You There. You see what's happening there. These are all complete sentences. They're all song titles. So bear in mind that on Twitter right now there's a contest going on. which says name the next Wally Lamb novel. It has to be a, a complete sentence or independent clause. It has to be a song title. And we'll send all of your suggestions uh, ahead to Wally and uh, see what he makes of them. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about nostalgia, because uh, in, in this book, as you have done in the past, um, you're kind of exploring the complex nature of nostalgia. Uh, both you and your protagonist, Felix, are kind of constantly running your thumbs down the knife's edge uh, of the way the past was better and worse, depending sometimes on who you were. Every longing for the past, we feel, is balanced by an understanding of how much it sucked maybe for somebody else. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that, that there's a way in which Felix longs to recover uh, all kinds of things that have been commercialized, cheapened, or coarsened by modern life. But as you look back at the past, you realize it's just rife with unaddressed inequalities and terrible decisions, and everybody's constantly smoking cigarettes no matter where you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, I think probably I'm, I'm uh, 66 years old now, and I made uh, Felix 60 uh, in this in this novel, and I think that uh, that is a time in one's life, at least for me, where you do look back and you do measure, you know, what's been gained and what's been lost. Um, and the vehicle that uh, I'm using here, the theme, if you will, the motif is um, is through the movie. So the um, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just read the first paragraph of the of the entire novel. Uh, which sort of, uh, you know, fires the, the shot about, about where the novel is going. And this is Felix, and he says, By the time you're 60, you have, of course, encountered the reality that life can be unfair or sad or even tragic. But life can also be benignly amusing, hilarious, and goofy even. All you have to do to realize that is take out those tattered family photo albums or pop in that VHS tape from 1983 or thread the old film projector that that vintage opto-mechanical Bell and Howell from the early 60s, say, and watch those home movies that your dead dad took back when you and your siblings were kids and he was still in his 30s and he aimed, shot, and captured for posterity who you all were back then. Yeah, and I, I think uh, actually we'll double down on that a little bit. And uh, this is, uh, we're going to talk in the third segment about 
the meta book, uh, which is something we're going to have to probably explain to a lot of you uh, in that. But I'm going to play a little clip anyway. Uh, I believe what we're going to hear is uh, uh, Kathleen Turner as uh, Director Lois Weber, this real-life person of the past uh, whom we've been talking about. And I think we're going to hear you, Wally Lamb, as Phoenix Funicello, talking, in fact, about stereotypes in film in the early 20th century. With the exception of myself and my stable of scribes, the screenwriters of The Silence served up characters who were clichés. There were the sheiks and the shebas, of course, and the comedians and comediennes, Chaplin and Keaton, Marie Dresler, Zazu Pitts. Beyond that, male characters were stalwart heroes, cads or Casper milk toasts. The females had to be Pollyanna types, as played by the likes of Miss Pickford and Miss Gish, or dumb Doras, or conniving femme fatales. Well, I, I hate to say so, but those stereotypes are alive and well in today's films, too. Oh, yes. We keep abreast of the current fare, drifting undetected in and out of your cookie-cutter cineplexes and the few movie palaces that still exist. So we never quite get rid of these things. And, you know, I think Wally, um, one of the apersues that I came away with from I'll Take You There is is that notion that, I mean, first of all, I think your vision of the past uh, is reminiscent and tied in with uh, the vision of the past, the same period that we see in Hairspray uh, and, and that we see sometimes in Mad Men. It's the same period. And there's a sense when we look at it from now that, that every for every time you and I would say, Boy, back in those days, you could get away with, you know, doing really offensive things or saying really offensive things about any group that didn't really have majority representation, whether it was women or, or African-Americans or Arab-Americans or you know, take your pick. Uh, and, and for every two of us saying that, there are still people here in 2016 going, I know, isn't that a shame you can't get away with that anymore? Um, <laughs> that there's a way in which there are people looking nostalgically towards stuff that we regard as the most mandatorily dispensable part of, of the past. Well, but also, uh, as, as a kid who watched way too much TV growing up, um, you will recall that in this era, TV was sort of squeaky clean. Uh, so you could hear people on the street, uh, you know, saying, you know, things that, that you know, you might cringe about now. Um, that, was, that was real life. But on television, everything was sort of hunky-dory. And uh, so I think that it depicted TV back then, whether it was sitcoms or talk shows, whatever, uh, depicted, um, you know, an ideal world rather than the real world. Yeah. Unless you were a Native American, in which case it just never went very well for you on TV. All right. So one of the weird uh, recovered artifacts uh, in this novel uh, is uh, the Miss Rheingold contest. Uh, I think we have a little piece of the Miss Rheingold contest advertisement to play for you. Another candidate in the third largest election in the United States is... Pat Burridge. You from Brooklyn too, Pat? Smile when you say that, stranger. You're talking to a gal from Texas. Born in Texas, raised in Texas, schooled in Texas. I see. You're from Texas. I take it you're planning to go back to Texas and have a little old corral full of fiddle ponies. You take it wrong, Pat. Right now I'm planning to be Miss Rheingold, 1950. And when I do go back to Texas, I want to be somebody's missus. I don't care about the pinto ponies. I just want a house full of kids. So you were involved, Wally Lamb, in a... Uh, that's the real... That, we didn't make that up. That's not for the Meadow Book. Or, that's actually the real... Part of this real, like, three or four-minute uh, thing. You were involved I'm gonna, in... I'm, 
from now on, I'm just going to say, you got it wrong, pard. (laughs) So uh, you were involved in a documentary called Beauty and the Beer, I think it's called. Uh, And that's about this bizarre contest that seemed to, I mean, it took everything that's objectionable about pageants and paired it with beer. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Democracy and uh, demure sex appeal. It was hugely successful as a marketing device. I can't believe that uh, in the Mad Men show they hadn't rediscovered it uh, because, uh, yeah, it was considered one one of the biggest marketing bonanzas of the 20th century. And and in your book, I think one of the things that it is, too, it's a nice um, a nice representation of kind of the trap, right? The beauty trap that 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 the person. Uh, I mean, one of the one of the characters is a contestant, a Miss Rangold contestant, and I don't want to like spoil any things that happen, but it just turns like to be uh, to be a part of your destiny that you can't put down. It's kind of like being a football hero, right? Once you can't play football anymore, what do you do? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, when I went to the premiere of uh, of this documentary, uh, some of the former Miss Rangels were there, and they're you know they're uh, still lovely women in their seventies and eighties now. Um, but yeah, you could some of them. It was just a job, and uh, you know they just barely remember it. And others sort of never got over the fact that they had been elected Miss Rangold. <laughs> and yeah, I, and I, once again, it, it is. It's a, it's that same thing. It's that same knife's edge because there's some part of me, even though I get and watching the commercial today, I got and listening to the commercial that it, like built into this thing when, is every objectionable thing about the way women's roles were understood then. On the other hand, it's a little piece of kitsch, right? And it's a, a sunny little piece of kitsch. It, it's kind of beguiling, too. You can sort of understand why how if you didn't think about it and looked at it, you'd think, oh, that's that was like a cute thing that they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, behind the cute thing was the fact that uh, they were afraid to run any uh, any women of color in the contest because there would have been white backlash, and so uh, that's ultimately what ended it. That and uh, and the the uh, second wave of feminism uh, comes along in the in the early '60s. The Miss Rangold contest went from I think it was 1940 to 1964, and then suddenly Betty Friedan comes out with her uh, you know watershed book and. Our bodies, ourselves, you know, sort of triggers the whole uh, feminist movement of the '70s, late '60s, and uh, and at the same time, the civil rights movement uh, sort of fires up, and uh, and and so Rheingold, as successful as that uh, marketing uh, promotion was, Rheingold was afraid to continue it for those two reasons. So they killed the contest. They sold the beer to Pepsi, and uh, when the factory finally closed down, they poured like hundreds of thousands of gallons of uh, Rheingold beer into the East River. <laughs> it's a very drunk fish. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more. We're going to talk about some about the present scene, too. Who else is associated with beauty pageants? I'm trying to think. There's somebody who's in the news right now who's associated with beauty pageants. I'm sure I'll come up with it. Uh, meanwhile, some nice people are going to ask you to help, so help support public radio. If you love a show like this one, then consider supporting it right now when we get the credit. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Jonathan McPants appeared in the intro, and our intern was Spooky Fisher. Part of Bill Curry was played by Bobby Darren. Subscribe to our show on iTunes or any other podcast platform. Tomorrow we go deep inside the Electoral College. And now, back to Colin. 
Yeah, everybody's talking about the Electoral College, so we're going to tell you all kinds of things that you didn't know about it. Meanwhile, we're talking to Wally Lamb. Uh, his new book is I'll Take You There. Don't forget, we have an online Name a Future Wally Lamb novel. In other words, uh, yeah, provide the title for a future Wally Lamb novel. has to be a song title. has to be a complete sentence. Uh, although I note, I note, uh, Wally, that one of your buddies, Eric Danton, is uh, is uh, participating online. Should we let Eric Danton <laughs> participate? Or I mean, he's kind of a pro, right? Do we, do we want to keep this open to more like amateur status? Oh no, I think we should uh, go crooked and have Eric be very much a part of it. All right, he's also taking performance-sensing drugs while he's doing this too. So I mean, we're just totally <laughs> in. Uh, so he was suggesting tonight there's going to be a jailbreak. Um, but uh, also, a guy named David Strever suggested, don't you forget about me. I could see that working. That's Ooh, kind of, it's kind yeah. of a, a Wally yeah. Lamb uh, quality to it. Uh, There's there... almost a threat to that one. <laughs> <laughs> don't you dare forget about me, buddy. That's right. That's right. Stalker song. It's sort of like every breath you take, you know. It's uh, All right. So uh, as long as we're talking about music, this is a little off topic uh, from the book, and we'll circle back to the book in just a second here. But uh, one of the things that Wally does, often in conjunction with the mentioned Eric Danton has come on the show and talk about music. Music's really important to you. You've been known even to, when you put books out, issue compendiums of songs that you think people should listen to uh, if if they are while they're reading the novel. Uh, and one of the people that you really kind of introduced me to, I mean, I'd heard of her and even knew one of the songs before, but I think your partisanship made me very familiar with somebody who passed recently, and that's Sharon Jones. Let's just hear a little bit of Sharon Jones here, and then I'll, I'll let you kind of riff on that a bit. This land is your land All right, that's uh, the late, great Sharon Jones. Uh, it fits very well into uh, a Wally Lamb conversation and a Wally Lamb paradigm. You tend to like music that's very rootsy uh, in nature. You tend to like music that combines at times different uh, rootsy uh, idioms. Uh, and so here's here's the, like, it's kind of the ideal. This is like if you want to have to record the perfect Wally Lamb song. In some ways, you take a Woody Guthrie song or Pete Seeger. I don't know who wrote that, but uh, whoever wrote that, some white folk singer wrote it. Sharon Jones recorded it about as funky as you can get it. It's also making a pretty profound political statement, maybe making the original folk singer statement in a more specifically black way. I don't know. It's like the ultimate Wally Lamb playlist song. Yeah, I like I like songs that have some grit and a little bit of politics in them. Uh, it, but but the politics go down easily. I, uh, she was an amazing uh, entertainer. Uh, she started out as a corrections officer. She was a she was a guard uh, down in New York, and uh, and she was a late bloomer as far as her music career. Uh, she teamed up with the Dap Kings, and uh, and they made uh, they made great soul music. I saw her. I, I was very fortunate enough to see her once up in Hartford, and uh, she put on an amazing show. And then what was just as amazing? I mean, she really 
you know, she must have burnt up about 20,000 calories performing. And then she comes right out into the audience and she signed and talked to people and um, and was there visiting with people for about an hour. She had a good heart. And, uh, you know, I have uh, uh, even this year, uh, shortly before her passing, uh, she came out with a, a song called I'm Still Here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, it's bitterly ironic now, that song. But, uh, but you know, in a sense, it's not because uh, her music will live on. Right. And she was touring with while she had pancreatic cancer, partly because she said, look, my band's got to work. Uh, everybody's uh, everybody needs their paycheck, uh, so she she headed out on the road one last time. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a, uh, an amazing story, and you know, I mean, maybe we could sort of build a little bit uh, on the title and treatment of that song. That's a live version of a song that she did also uh, record, and and you know, maybe I can connect it without too much force uh, involved. To I'll take you there, and to the writing that you do about this community called Three Rivers. Pretty clearly, just you know, Norwich, it's Eastern Connecticut. It's uh, this this land that you know, and it's full of the kind of undocumented people. And I don't mean undocumented immigrants. I mean people who whose stories, for the most part, aren't told. Whether they're uh, working class white collar people or uh, working class excuse me, excuse me blue collar white people or or minority people, they are. Um, uh, they're they're that sector of America that everybody kept insisting over the past year wasn't being heard from. Um, mm-hmm. You know, now we and, and I don't know, maybe you want to say a little bit more about that. You've clearly been very committed over decades now to telling stories of people who, for the most part, aren't commemorated in fiction in popular culture. Yeah, you know the uh, the old uh, the old the uh, old advice that people give uh, to new writers is write about what you know. I would say when I look back at the kind of things that I've come up with, I I kind of write about what I know, but I write about people that I don't necessarily know, um, and so I kind of like to sort of crawl beyond the you know the uh, my own skin and put on somebody else's skin, but in a in a setting that's familiar. I just saw last night for the second time. It was so, it was such a good movie that I wanted to see it again and study it rather than just watch it. But Manchester by the Sea, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that one, uh, Colin, yet, but it's a it's a wonderful movie and it is about my kind of people. I mean, it takes place in uh, in uh, in um, Massachusetts, I guess, uh, or no, wait, Massachusetts. Is it? Or is it New Hampshire? Where's Manchester by the Sea? Yeah, um, it's, I, I don't know. How, I haven't seen the movie yet, but uh, I do know what it's about, and I'm not sure whether they're specific about where where exactly they are. Uh, yeah, um, but anyway, it's just uh, it's it's about real people, and it's uh, it's wrenching and beautiful. Well, you know, I mean, the other thing that we saw, of course, was that uh, in the name of giving voice to some of those people who didn't have voices, we saw Donald Trump uh, run the Electoral College table uh, pretty well and become president. And now this guy who kind of was this who paraded as this apostle uh, for the working class and the lower middle class and the voiceless is assembling a government that's composed of one billionaire or multimillionaire after another, plus a bunch of generals. And, and, uh, you know, in the writing community, I was on the website of Penn today, the Poets Essays mm-hmm. Novelist uh, group that you're very associated with and who've really backed you on your work with prison populations. And it looks like an armed camp there. It's like, you know, metaphorically, the writers are piling up sandbags, you know, wondering what kind of tension between uh, free expression and repression is to come. Does this, does this moment make you nervous that way, that people may not be able to operate as freely as they have in the past? Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm uh, I'm apprehensive and I'm also angry. And, um, you know, if uh, if we're all going to, you know, have to, 
be pushed back to the 1950s, then I'm perfectly willing to, uh, you know, put on my old tie-dye shirt and pick up my placard and, uh, okay, let's have the 60s again because there are certain things that, uh, you know, we can't tolerate. We can't go backwards uh, into the into the negative stuff that, uh, you know, that we've all lived through and triumphed over. So that's my feeling. Well, it's also got to break your heart, having worked so much with the prison population, particularly the women's prison population, to have a guy go in as attorney general. I mean, we've, we've been through this transition, not even just the last eight years, longer than that, a bipartisan American consensus that there's too many people in prison and a lot of people in prison are in there for offenses that really don't even make sense. They're not threats to the community, you know, um, and, and you know these stories so much more intimately than, than most of us do, and to have an attorney general who basically seems to be subscribing, as you say, to a much more 1950s or 1960s model of law enforcement, including, yeah, like just, you know, using drugs might be a reason why you get locked up. That's got to kill you. Yeah, it's scary. I also uh, was so offended during the campaign about, um, you know, the way that women were treated and objectified and, uh, you know, these the sort of sleazy comments that came out about them. Um, I didn't know at the time when I was writing this novel uh, that uh, that you know it was going that the election was going to go the way it did. But um, uh, in retrospect, I'm really glad that I decided to dedicate the book to uh, feminists of all kinds uh, and uh, uh, of all eras. You know, from the you know from the women who got the right to uh, to vote for for females to the '70s marchers to the um, you know, the millennial uh, feminists who are, uh, you know, taking a more global and a more social media approach to things. But I think, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm worried about a lot of things in the coming in the coming months, in the coming years. But, um, you know, I think the treatment of women um, uh, is, is one of the things that I think is, is very disturbing or potentially disturbing. Um, we're talking to Wally Lamb. The new novel is I'll Take You There. Hey, we got about four minutes left, and one thing I did want to talk to you a little bit about, something I really knew very little about going into this, is this uh, notion of the meta book, uh, I'll Take You There, is available as a conventional novel in all the ways that you can get, read, and absorb a conventional novel. But there is something else, something that Felix Funicello, the protagonist of I'll Take You There, probably would have disapproved of, uh, called a meta, meta book. For people who even don't know that word, Wally, tell us what it is. Well, it's a it's a downloadable uh, version of the novel uh, from uh, you can it's it's only for iPads and iPhones, but uh, you can download it in the App Store and uh, you get not only the text, which you can read on your tablet or whatever, uh, but you can listen to it. You played a a clip of uh, of Lois, uh, Lois Weber as voiced by Kathleen Turner. Uh, there were some other really great people on that. Uh, it's like a it's like an audio play of the novel. Uh, Jeremy Sisto of Law and Order is on there, and uh, Dana Delaney, a Connecticut native who has uh, done a lot of movies and TV and so forth. Um, so there's that, and then there's a soundtrack uh, that uh, features uh, some well-known musicians doing. Uh, you know, alternate takes on this on the stuff that they made hits out of, and also some some new artists. So, um, you know, soundtrack, audio play. There's a gallery. Uh, uh, there are discussion questions. Uh, there's all kinds of extra goodies. Lois Weber, uh, in, lo- little mini documentary on Lois Weber, right? That's right. Yeah, um, and uh, I learned things about Lois Weber that I didn't through research. That uh, that when I watched the documentary about her, that uh, you know, that that sort of you know, educated me too. 
Um, it's got, this has got to be fun for you. I mean, particularly maybe the musical part. It used to be, I alluded to this, but if you were uh, an FOW, a friend of Wally, uh, you might get the advanced <laughs> copy in the mail, and then you get this very thick double CD um, uh, playlist. So uh, now we're not so special anymore. We ask FOWs. <laughs> Everybody's going to get the playlist. But that's got to be fun for you to curate something like that. Well, you know, they'll get the, uh, the Metabook playlist, but I am still now... <laughs> As America's oldest teenager, now that Dick Clark and uh, Casey Kasem are both ghosts, uh, I'm still making my annual playlist, and uh, I just have to burn those CDs. I think I'm probably the only one still buying <laughs> blank CDs and burning <laughs> them off. Uh, but you'll get yours, Colin. I'll, uh, I've got some goodies. I've got... Uh, I've got drive-by truckers on there and Frank Ocean and a bunch of really good stuff. Yeah, we did a whole show on the new Frank Ocean. It's really great. And it's really great to talk to you, uh, Wally. Before you came on in the intro, I said I actually was lucky enough to meet you before you were you hadn't really finished uh, She's Come Undone when we first met. Wow. So what a, a long, strange trip it's been. And it's been so much fun to watch all the things that you've done. And we're uh, excited to see what comes next. Do you know the title of your next novel? Uh, I have uh, two possibilities right now. Uh, one is um, Dr. Patel, which would break my uh, yeah. uh, break my my tradition of uh, musical uh, titles, and the other is Wide River to Cross. All right. Well, whatever it is, we're looking forward to it. This this one's a lot of fun, but it's not just fun. It's got some very serious things to say about the past and how we understand ourselves and how we understand the actual past. So Wally Lamb, uh, the book is I'll Take You There. We'll go out with that song and the spirit of Wally and his playlists. Uh, thanks very much for listening today. And we do have some people coming to ask you. I mean, if this is the kind of show that you like, you know, an in-depth conversation with Wally, Wally Lamb, maybe you've been a fan for a long time, um, then, you know, support it. If you like the crazy stuff we do in general, uh, then let us know. It's really good if you give during our time period. It sort of goes down and on our report card as an A. Is that another ghost in the theater? No, they just really don't like you.